I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. And this is our eighth and final workshop episode where we discuss and collaborate on work made by our listeners in the Out on the Wire working group. I'm here today with Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hi. And Matt Madden. Hi, everyone. Episode eight's challenge was... Get an edit. This is different from the challenge for episode seven, where I suggested that you do a focus session. A focus session is an editorial collaboration that happens during the conceptual or writing phase of the project, whereas an edit is a critique that happens on an at least semi-complete draft of a piece. This week, we put out a call to the working group members who had finished a piece of audio work and were looking for an edit. Matthew Williamson, a producer, got in touch. What we'll be doing today is listening in full to the very first episode of his and host Dan Waldschmidt's podcast, Ordinary Heroes. And then afterwards, we'll be doing an edit of Matthew and Dan's piece altogether. I'm Matt Williamson. I'm the producer of Ordinary Heroes. I'm Dan Waldschmidt. I'm the interviewer and uh, host. I guess that's probably the, the best way to describe it. And what is Ordinary Heroes? Ordinary Heroes is our podcast where... Um, we're looking at stories of ordinary people who seem to live life heroically and digging into their stories and listening to their problems and then trying to find some sort of conclusion or answer to what are they doing differently? And is that behavior something that I could mimic to live life heroically as well? So let's get started. Here's Ordinary Heroes, Episode 1. When we think of heroes... We often think of the stranger rushing into a burning building or the athlete who makes the winning shot with less than a second left. But heroism, true heroism, is really just a choice. A choice to rise above the challenges that hold you back. This is the Ordinary Heroes Podcast. Edgy conversations about ordinary people who do the hard things. I remember looking at her and saying, it's not supposed to happen this way. Because we're supposed to go through, we're supposed to go through another round of chemo. And she looked at me and she said, you knew this was going to happen. But I said to her, I'm not ready. Grief can be overwhelming. Debilitating. Your whole world unravels around you while everyone else seems to just go about life as if nothing has happened. You feel frozen, unable to move forward, unwilling to let go of the past. Friends become acquaintances. Your passions become a chore. You're broken and not sure how to put the pieces of your life back together. This is a story about overcoming grief, about stumbling your way heroically forward in a world full of regret and fear. My name is Debbie Lowry, and it's spelled D-E-B-I, and I teach kindergarten. My name is Scott Lowry, and I work for Coca-Cola. Debbie's story starts with the earliest memories of her mother struggling with health issues. She had fibromyalgia. Um, She had um, high blood pressure. Debbie always knew something was wrong with her mom. She wasn't like her friends' moms, and that scared her. I think I kind of grew up that way, knowing that she wasn't well, because when most kids would have active parents, um, my mom would work full-time to keep us in private school. And then when she came home, she took care of dinner, cleanup, but then she got on the couch and she rested for the rest of the night. So I knew that things weren't normal. Things weren't normal at all. But Debbie didn't spend much time thinking about how her mom's health could affect her own life. Even though both her parents struggled with poor health, Debbie seemed to be naturally fit and healthy without even trying. Going and working out at the the fitness center maybe um, three times a week because that's what everybody said back then. If you exercise three times a week, then you're healthy. So I would go for 20 minutes three times a week, 20 to 30 minutes to do the treadmill or walking, not running, or doing um, the elliptical or even taking like an aerobics class, but nothing, it, it wasn't really a part of my everyday life. Debbie's mom tried to warn her. Every once in a while, she would talk to Debbie about her battle with fibromyalgia, reminding her gently 
that she wouldn't always be around. She would sit me down and she would say, you know, I'm not always going to be here someday. It was hard to wrap my mind around what she was saying and why she was trying to say it. How do you understand death and grief when your future looks incomparably bright? You push back the fear you feel rising in your throat. That's what Debbie did, trying to block out the uncontrollable thoughts of dread. College helped distract Debbie from worrying about her mom. New friends, new activities, excitement, fun. It worked. Life began to feel normal again. Everything was going to be okay after all. Until the day Debbie received a phone call from her mom. You need to come home because I've had surgery. Her mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Normally, you involve the entire family in a life-altering situation like this, but not her. She didn't want to bother anyone. She didn't want to scare Debbie. By the time Debbie got the phone call, the surgery to remove the cancer was over. She was out of the hospital already and headed home. That was always the way her mom knew to handle issues like this. She just, she took the burden all on herself. Which made Debbie feel helpless. How could this have happened without her knowing about it? Without her being there to help? Fear and anger began to creep into her mind as she wondered why this was happening. And why she was so powerless to help. She went home for the weekend to be with her mom. Monday morning came and Debbie was back at college. Time made the worry fade. Months went by and her mom not only recovered, but seemed completely healthy. Was it too good to be true? I think you always have that little fear in the back of your mind that, you know, things are going too well, something bad is going to happen. But nothing bad did happen. Months turned into years. Two, three, five years, seven, ten, twelve years, cancer-free, healthy, happy, Life was good. Love took the place of fear and dread and doubt. In that time, Debbie met a boy named Scott, and they fell in love, got married, and started a family together. Soon, a beautiful little girl named Kyrie became the sparkle in every Christmas photo. Debbie was teaching school, and Scott was building a career. Every day was full of promise and hope. But on her way home from her kindergarten class... She checked her messages. I just want you to know, I went to the doctor and the cancer's back, and that was that. The cancer is back. With it came the fear and dread and hopelessness she felt before. She wanted to help her mom fight this time, but her mom had other plans. She did not want me at the hospital. She wanted me to teach. Debbie pleaded with her mom to let her be more involved in helping her recover this time. Her version of being more involved was um, allowing me to um, help her around the house. So I took um, some personal days off, and when she came home, um, I was there to help her around the house and bathe her in things that she feared my dad would not be capable of handling. In an ironic twist of fate, Scott's career success added more stress to Debbie's freight emotions. I had moved into a frontline supervisor role. It would mean more money and responsibility. It would also mean that they would need to leave their families in North Carolina and move south. I did not want to move, and there was a lot of strife between us. One of the first conversations was, Scott, we don't feel like you need to move in order to take this role. So I come home, tell Debbie that, hey, we don't have to move. Everything is good. We get to stay. And and I still get promoted. 
a couple of days later, I get a phone call and said, Scott, we want you to move. Well, Debbie had already signed her contract to teach. It wasn't just the school. I mean, it's the fact that we had we had roots there. Our family was there. My, my parents were there. His parents were there. His mom is there. I mean, we had family. So they made it work. It was a crazy setup. Debbie and Kyrie would live with her parents during the week so that Debbie could continue teaching and Kyrie could finish the school year while Scott stayed in Greenville, South Carolina. They would all spend the weekends together. It was a part-time marriage that only added to the fear and panic that began to overwhelm Debbie as she tried to help her mom fight back against the cancer that was consuming her body. Some days, there wasn't any fight left. And I kept saying, Mom, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. Well, what's the point? Because I can't take the medicine. There's nothing she can do for me. Her mom was too sick to keep trying. Her dad didn't know what to do, and Debbie felt overwhelmed. And it just, it wasn't a good quality of life for her. She tried to prepare herself for her mom not always being there. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know what? Um, Usually they say that it takes five years for the cancer to grow back, so I probably have five more years. That's exactly what I thought. And it was actually, what, two years when it came back? She was going downhill, fast. My dad would call me and say, you need to tell her to go to the doctor because she's walking around like she's 90. Something is wrong with her and she will not go to the doctor. Debbie's five-year plan didn't seem likely anymore. She was past the point of um, taking pills. When she had cancer the last time, she had to go through chemo. That gave her a few months. That's what saved her for those last few months. The cancer was spreading through her entire body. Her liver was actually 90, over 95% consumed with cancer. It had spread to her bone, and it had even spread to um, her brain. It wasn't just her organs. Her clarity was gone. She wasn't thinking well. Despite the pain, her mom still didn't want Debbie around to help. She said, no, you have a family, you have a daughter, you have a husband, you need to be with them, that's your family. And I said, no, you are my mother and I am not going to have any regrets. I'm going to be there with you. I'm not going to have any regrets. Gripped by a sense of the brevity of time she had left with her mom, Debbie threw herself into caring for her. It was almost an everyday occurrence that I was driving up there. I would teach um, half day, and I would leave as close to 1230 as I could, and I would drive to North Carolina. Um, And in the beginning, it was going with her to doctor appointments, um, taking notes because she couldn't, She couldn't process what they were saying because she was so sick. She was doing everything she could, but it still wasn't enough. And my dad was beside himself. He didn't, he didn't know what to do. So I knew that I had to be the one that was the thinker for both of them. Her body became too weak to keep fighting. She didn't want to fight. She was so sick in the beginning, she did not want to fight. There were too many days like this. Debbie's mom barely clinging to life. She said to me, they better hurry up and help me. And I looked at her, I said, why is that, Mom? And she said, because I'm going to die soon. They don't help me, I'm gonna die. Debbie holding frantically onto each moment with her mom. I remember looking at her and saying, it's not supposed to happen this way because we're supposed to go through 
her to go through another round of chemo. And she looked at me and she said, you knew this was gonna happen. But I said to her, I'm not ready. No matter what Debbie did, her mom kept getting worse. My dad calls me at 1.30 in the afternoon and he says, mom hasn't gotten up yet. She's not up yet. And I said, well, dad, you need to go wake her up. It was maddening. Debbie was doing all she could to manage being a mom herself and a wife and a teacher. She had to make tough choices. And so she, she said, I'm going to give it, I'll give it one more fight. I'll go through the chemo. And I said to her, I said, Mom, whatever you want is fine with me. If you're ready to go, if you're ready to go, I'll accept that. One of her final visits with her mom in the emergency room was cut short because Debbie had to head back to school the next day to teach her students. This is where the the regret comes when I run. I should have stayed with her. She was alone in the hospital. My dad went home. I should have stayed with her. I should have been with her because that those seven months, I told Scott, I am going to be with her. I'm going to be with her. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to have any regrets. I should have, I should have stayed with her. I was not there Monday night. I was not there Tuesday night. I was not there Wednesday night. Then Thursday happened. Thursday morning, I got a call from the doctors um, as I'm driving into school. And I pulled over because I knew, I knew what was coming. And he said to me, you need to call the family. Yet I continued and I stayed at the school and I taught. And that is a regret. I should have been there. She finally was able to make it up to North Carolina with Scott after school, but her mom was beyond help at that point. Her battle was ending. For the last um, three hours, she was right there with me. She, she held my hand. She didn't open her eyes. I could tell she was trying to, but I sang to her and she was moving her lips and she was very much there with me. And then the next morning, she passed away. And the amazing thing was my my dad doesn't deal well with um, hard situations. He actually came at 3 o'clock in the morning and he said, I can't sleep. So he sat um, next to her and he held her hand. And my brother and I were there when she passed. Fear and dread and doubt gave way to a deep anger and helplessness. I don't think I really felt the fullness of the anger and the frustration until after she passed. How was she supposed to go on with her life? Would she ever feel normal again? The Saturday after her mom's funeral, Debbie had already committed to support her friend running a 5K. She had never run one before, But she and a friend had agreed almost a year earlier to do this together. I'm going to do it because I said I would do it. I haven't trained for this. I'm not a runner. And I did it. It was hard and it hurt, especially the hills. But afterwards, I felt a little relief after after pushing myself through it. Her body was sore. I absolutely hated it. I hated it, and it hurt. But she felt something different inside her. 
the anger and frustration seemed to heal a little bit. That's when it clicked. Running was her therapy. A place to cry when no one could see her. A place to get revenge for the anger and grief that was so crushing and all-consuming on the inside. She crossed the finish line of that 5K feeling something different for the first time since her mom's long battle with cancer. And so she kept running, mile after mile after mile. She's run a lot of miles since her mom has passed. 2,480 miles. It's no coincidence that Debbie chose to stick with a sport where the responsibility is all on her. It's just me. It falls on me. There's nothing else. When grief becomes overwhelming, I'm hearing the voices of, you should have done more. You didn't do enough. You are all by yourself. You're alone. Debbie runs. It's not always pretty or fast or fun. But it's her way to cope with the fear, anger, and regret that had controlled her life up to this point. I was taught not to do, not to be emotional, to be strong. Because when you show your emotions, you show your vulnerabilities. So I'm going to read you one thing that she wrote just recently as she ran. She said, lots of tears during this run. Run, slow pace, missing her today. I've made some awful mistakes since she's been gone, but I'm learning and I'm growing and that's what matters. It's changed from, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, to, I enjoy this. This is, this is nice, this is beneficial, this helps me feel better, I need this. As she runs, she heals, and shares the lessons she has learned about fighting fear and regret and anger that we're all consuming. You need to live your life with no regrets. And that is something that I tell myself often. That's hard to do when you feel overwhelmed by scary problems in life. You have to find a way to handle the fear and doubt that threatens to consume everything good and hopeful in your future. Life goes on, but you are stuck in this sea of despair, of sadness, and just feeling all by yourself, being isolated. And you don't know what to do. And... You're at a point where you don't, you don't feel like you can reach out to anybody because you feel so alone. It's heroic to push back boldly day after day after day against the emotions that distort reality and cripple your perspective on a positive future. Like Debbie, ordinary heroes do the hard things that other people just make excuses to avoid doing. Ordinary heroes figure out a way to come back stronger, and they keep fighting for themselves. Debbie's healing isn't over, but Scott's frank observation about how she takes on the voices of fear and grief in her mind challenge us all how to live lives as ordinary heroes. She hears them, but she's chose not to listen to them. Okay, so we'll just jump right in. Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. I really liked the um, the character you found. Her name is Debbie Debbie Lowry. So she was really um, lovely. I thought her tape was really nice. Um, you know, there's a lot of great emotion in her story and 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 in her telling of it. She was very in touch with those things. I thought that was great. Um, and you know, overall, the approach of having you know her story and then sort of like how she's managed to you know, overcome this difficulty seemed like a workable basic idea. It's really very, very ambitious, mm-hmm. I think, especially with the soundtracking. And um, I mean, it's very produced. Right. So, Ben, why don't you describe what it sounded like to you? So I guess to me, it sort of sounded um, sort of halfway between uh, a sort of like 
NPR style podcast, like a like a profile, yeah, or, or like a This American Life, even mm-hmm. kind of like profile of a person, and then the other half was sort of more like a self help kind of podcast, like more of a mission oriented, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and so it was. It sort of seemed to me that sonically, um, it sort of tried to split that difference. Would you think, Matt? Yeah, I felt the same way, and and uh, it feels a little bit like you guys are still trying to find the the voice of the podcast, you know, sonically and in terms of how it's presented. And um, I found for me, I was wondering, like Dan, with your presentation of the of the of the copy that you'd written, um, and this might be partly be a a matter of getting used to hearing your voice recorded and stuff. So it sounded a little bit like you were doing a more public speaking and not taking advantage of the the intimacy that's possible, you know, when you listen to Ira Glass or someone on, on the radio and they can talk very quietly and almost whisper. Um, so the the result of it made it feel a little bit like you're, you know, presenting it a bit too loud, which also makes the ideas that you're presenting seem a bit more strident than I think maybe they seem on paper. Um, that was one, uh, you know, feeling I had in terms of this, this question of just finding the right tone and, and voice for the, the shows in general. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But let's let's reel back a little bit and start with something a little bit more basic. Um, so so let's get down to what is the focus sentence of this particular episode. Did you guys work out a focus sentence? We did. Let me pull that up. Debbie's mom gets fibromyalgia when she's a kid. Then her mom gets cancer in college. Then she gets cancer again, but dies. And then you wouldn't believe it, but Debbie didn't wallow in the pain or dedicate her life to the memory of her mom, but instead stumbled on an unexpected cure running. And the reason that's interesting to every single person walking the face of the earth is we all go through heartache and healing can come in unexpected ways. Okay. I think that uh, when I was listening to the story, I felt like um, the focus, like that, that was, that was what you were getting at. It was clear. Um, Although I think that the story was um, weighted much too heavily towards the chronology of what happened. Like that stuff, you know, it's not that you don't need to say it at all. But, you know, it's a 25-minute story, 22-minute story. And the first, you know, 15 minutes of it are kind of backstory. You know, you have a whole bunch of stuff. And then if you really want to focus on the running as being this solution, this way out, because your focus is helping your listeners figure out how to get through their own problems, then I think you need to figure out how to focus the the whole telling around that as opposed to the narration of all of the, the problems that, that the mother had. Now, from my point of view, when I was listening to it, what I felt like the story was really about, the heroism in the story wasn't running. It was the fact that she devoted her life to taking care of her mother for the last year or two of her mother's life and really gave up lots of things in her own life. She gave up her own comfort because and this, the message to me was don't have regrets. That was the message that I got. Um, and so the focus for me was something a little bit more like – and I didn't work out a Soren on this, but um, the, the focus sentence is something like um, – Debbie devoted her life in the last two years of her mother's life to to really taking care of her mother um, because she wanted to make sure she did not have any regrets about how she treated her mother and, and the relationship that they had. Um, but her mother died anyway, and she had to deal with this in some way. So there's like an and so, you know, and it's kind of like a coda. She discovered running almost accidentally, and it's a way that she's 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 helping herself. But that isn't really the point. To me, anyway, Matt. Matt has something to say here, right? Yeah, I, I just uh, just agree with that completely because I actually I listened to the whole uh, thing yesterday, and then I listened to it again today. And, and the first time, I was sort of taken by surprise when we started seemed to be starting into a whole new section on on the running and stuff. I, was like, I thought this was about really about the mother dying and how she handled it. And like like Jessica said, and I'll add also that it's also uh, with the resistance, you know, the mom not wanting to be helped and not and sort of you know she really had to force herself onto her mom to let her be helped as she was dying. Um, so, uh, and I think Jessica's right that the, the running thing, although it's important, is kind of like a coda or like a kind of denouement of the story. It's like she, she, you know, did this heroic, ordinary heroic thing, which is just like seeing your loved one through the end of their lives and making sure they're okay and that you do everything you can. And then, you know, her sort of her reward for it in a way is that she discovers running and it finds some solace in that. I thought that there was maybe a little bit of a mismatch between uh, the sort of style and presentation of the story and the, I guess, the size of the story. 
Yeah. I, so so I feel like, and especially the title Ordinary Heroes um, points to this idea that these are small stories, you know, about ordinary things that ordinary people can achieve to have some to 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 show some level of heroism in their lives. And and a, and maybe there's a definitional thing going on here and, and you're using this differently. But to me, a hero is somebody who does something selfless for somebody else, not for themselves. Right. Her taking care of herself is wonderful. It's great to see that she's doing that. But to me, it's not heroic, like at all, basically. What's heroic is the way that she's given up something of her own and her own comfort and her own, you know, she's fought against these resistant, these these levels of resistance in her mother and, and her father and her husband in order to do this thing that needed to be done and, and was without too many rewards. I mean, she even ended, her mother's life ended and she still has regrets, even though she tried so hard not to. And, but so that's a, like, kind of a small story like it's a very nice story but it's a story that happens in many people's lives and i feel like you could talk to directly to a lot of listeners with that story but the fact that you spend so much time setting up the end of her mother's life felt like out of scale with the story itself that really the focus for me the focus needed to be on the whatever it was about 5 minutes in the middle of the story when she goes through what actually happened and how she had to fight really hard to get to be able to take care of her mother and to fight you know so that she would not have these regrets and and i think being a small story is actually um in a lot of ways an advantage because it means that you can step back a little bit because it's something that we all can sort of relate to. A lot of people have had this sort of experience, something similar in their own family's lives. And so they they have a way of processing this stuff already. And so, um, Dan, we hear a lot. There's a lot of Dan in this uh, in this podcast. And I sort of I, I really felt like um, it was it was fine and it was it was good when you were sort of moving the plot forward as it were. Right, because you can you can compress action with, yeah. with narration really efficiently in a, in a way that I think would re- be really helpful to even do more of. Basically, your job is to sort of summarize what's going on when we're not with Debbie. Um, but when we're talking about sort of an emotional point, it's really Debbie should be the one who's sort of reflecting on those things. She should be the one who's... Uh, she should get the good tape. She should be the one who's the star, basically. And she has beautiful tape. In she has this. beautiful tape. She's like when she starts crying, like that's amazing. Um, but she's a woman of simple words, and I feel your impulse to want to say things in grander ways. Yeah. But I feel like her simple words really connect. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with your observations um, on this. Is that a result of asking better questions or knowing the story ahead of time? I feel like in the several of the interviews that we've done, we've started someplace, and then in asking questions, I realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the story. The story is something else. Um, and, and quickly trying to shift the, my preparation in one area to, to something else. Is that a result of – could that be improved by knowing the story ahead of time versus thinking you know the story ahead of time or better preparation, better questions? I, I think that – I think that you have the right impulse to just when you hear something that's like, oh, that's the story, you just chase it down. You just go. But yes, you can probably get better at predicting that that's going to happen by having a good pre-interview. And so, um, so Dan, you're the one who does the actual interviewing, right? Yes. Yes. So you might even have like Matthew give the person a call to set up the interview and ask them to, to lay out the big points of the story and let them know this is not the interview I'm not asking you any big questions. Just tell me, like, what happened when and, like, set up a little timeline. And then in your preparation, one of the biggest things for you, especially with this st- with this theme for this podcast, what you're going to want to do is identify turning points. You're going to want to know, you know, what was the moment when you went from one kind of realization to, you know, from one place to another when you changed, right? And she, you don't want to ask those questions in a pre-interview because you're going to get the tape you're not going to get that tape because you're not recording. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. But you want to try to think through all the questions that you have ahead of time saying, um, all right, so, you know, the the moment of crisis came when her mother was sick again. You know, that is, so what, how was she before? How was she after? Like, what did her illness do to her? How did it change her? You know, um, and how did the fact that she was, that she had been ill before make her decision making different for the second time that she was sick? 
you know, so those, if you have those questions in your mind, then you're prepared to get those emotion, that bit of, that emotional tape. That said, you have emotional tape. The fact that she's not saying this in as like bold and clear way as you'd like is just reality. You know, like she, you know, you you could go back to her and like re-interview her about this and talk a little bit more about the changes that she went through potentially. I mean, if you could have access to her, but um, but you do have a lot of tape, and basically, I think you need to trust that we will hear it. You know, when she's going in and, and that a lot of that is down to Matthew and his choices in production, what he's going to cut out in the tape to to clarify and like make big arrows toward in her tape. Uh, there's one moment at the almost at the very, very end that I that I thought was really important. It's when it's when Debbie says I was taught not to be emotional growing up. Something, something along those lines. Yeah, that was interesting. And, and that's at the that's at the very end of the story. And and to me, that is like that's the setup. You know that that allows us if we know that right up front, then it allows us to sort of think about the story as it's happening in different ways. And actually, in retrospect, it makes a lot more sense. Like why her mother was sort of not sort of distant about like letting her daughter care for her and stuff. Like th- those questions. Um, become, I think, richer and and more interesting. Yeah, yeah and, like you could actually take that tape and put that wow. right at the top. Okay, like right. Okay. That's your hook. That's cool. And she texted us afterwards. She texted me afterwards because because I've known her for a while and we do have access to her to go back. But I never knew this story, and she is very very um um keeps to herself emotionally. Uh, not this. She even texted me later and said, "I haven't." cried about my mom like that since she passed away like i have not been that moved by the you know by the by a thought of my mom so we we did get some good tape yeah and that's i think that's a great service that you can do as an interviewer is because people are not often asked to think about things in this way you often will access really deep emotions in people as an interviewer and um and you as you get better at it will learn to like allow that to happen, you know, create space in which people can feel those feelings. Let it ride for a while. Let them think. Let them reflect on it. Let them say the next thing after the awkward pause that you let happen, you know? And that might be your awesome tape that you get. Um, Part of our challenge with this first episode was, frankly, technologically, I kind of dropped the ball. Our our microphone set up. One worked. One didn't work. Um, And so... Um, we over, probably overly comp, overly compensated by that those long narration because we just didn't have the audio of me with her as I as I would in subsequent episodes. Obviously, you can tell I'm I'm asking questions. Um, this is an interview. You don't necessarily need your questions in there, though. I don't think. I mean, sometimes I think it's good because it has a very different tone, and if the question itself is revelatory in some way, you can leave it in. But, you know, when we're doing my interviews with, you know, the little interviews you put at the end of Out on the Wire sometimes, we often we cut out like three quarters of my questions and just leave a few of them. Just the ones that are absolutely crucial for like understanding what's going on. Um, But the tape to me, I mean, maybe you don't have good tape of you speaking, but the tape of her was I thought it was perfectly fine. It wasn't like super high quality tape, but it was fine. Yeah. And I think basically that you have enough tape there to tell the story. And uh, basically, I think it's I mean, I don't know if you guys have like a a goalpost that like this podcast, everyone has to be 22 minutes long, but um, basically it could be shorter because there, it, you know, it's a, it's a really rich story and full of emotion. Um, but there are various points where I found that it, it dragged a little bit uh, because there was just, too, you know, and maybe you're overcompensating because you felt like you didn't have enough tape, but like there's like for just for one concrete example, when they talk about how the husband gets promotion and then you know, just the, the, the idea is that there's strife because it's, it's you know, she wants to stay home to be with the mom. And instead that you get into this sort of digression about how, well, he got a call and then they said, you get the raise, but you don't have to move. And then, they, and then she takes the job and then, you know, stuff that could have just been explained in one sentence ends up being like a, you know, a full minute's worth of, uh, of narration. So there's, I think there's lots of little things like that that you could just cut out with a little, you know, a, well, a pretty, a pretty, uh, serious edit sweep and cut it down in length and have a much tighter uh, and faster moving piece without losing any of the power. Right. We really want to get to the the meat of the story, which is the, the period in which she was caring for her mother in her mother's last years. We want to get to that very quickly. 
And so why don't we just go through in order, through our notes in order, Ben. You and I have fairly detailed notes on this thing and just and go through the scenes. So um, first you have your intro, which seemed fine. It was pretty short. And then you get into um, this long uh, description of Debbie's childhood and her childhood with her mother, um, which I was expecting to pay off directly in terms of like, oh, and her mother was sick with something her whole childhood and died when she was when Debbie was 15 or you know what I mean. But instead, this is something that's like basically ancient history. And um, I fibromyalgia may be a um, risk factor for breast cancer. I imagine it is. That's why it came up. But, um, you know, just saying Debbie's mother had fibromyalgia as a, you know, as an adult and Debbie knew this, that might be enough to say, like, rather than describing all of this stuff, the fact of her mother resting on the couch and all that other stuff seemed like at first it seemed like it was going to be really important. And then it just wasn't, you know, like in the details, it wasn't important. Right. And and the music comes in really strong here. And I think this is an, a note just sort of overall um, for, for Matthew is uh, overall it's, too, I think it's too loud just in the mix, but I also think just emotionally, it's way too strong. A little too uh, Dateline NBC kind of. It sort of feels like you're trying to tell us uh, what to feel instead of just like sort of letting us feel because the story is, you know, if this if the story is interesting, uh, we shouldn't need that. And and the music is really only there to uh, sort of punctuate you know, like scenes. Well, there's, I mean, you, it does have an emotional content and I think having an emotional content is fine. Um, but I think that you have to save that for key moments. And basically you're using very emotional music all the way through it. And if you use music that has more of a, um, keep things rolling forward, you know, like let's keep moving here sense more often earlier on, then you will save that punch for when you really want it. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt that it just could be used a bit more, a bit more sparingly. Um, cause it, it was effective when, it, when I first started to notice it, it was effective. But then after a while I started noticing that it was sort of like still lingering on rumbling in the background, you know, and it got a bit distracting. Um, so, so yeah, so mu- mu- yes, music, but more, uh, like non less emotional music throughout. And the other thing is that, um, there's a sort of a 45 second to two minute rule about scenes where you want to sort of think about changing scenes every 45 seconds or up to two minutes, um, and every scene has sort of a beginning and a middle and an end, right? So um, setting up, for example, the uh, the college scene, which actually I think you could probably cut. You don't need the college scene at all. The fact that the Debbie was at college and all that, you would set that up. She went to college and then, and then she got this call, blah, blah, blah. And then 45 seconds later, you're on to something else. Um, and one of the, the roles of music is to, you know, you either start music at the beginning of the scene or you end it at the beginning of the scene. You have some kind of punctuation uh, with sound that helps people go new thought, you know, and like turn the page. So going back through in order, we have the um, so we have the co- the college scene where she her mother didn't even tell her that, you know, the the crucial point there is that she was at college and her mother went in for surgery for breast cancer and didn't tell her until she was out of the hospital, which is crazy and great setup for this whole we're not I was not trained to be emotional thing. You totally need that, but what you don't need is the fact that. You know, and then she went to college, and then you know, there's a lot of opening and closing of doors. If you see what I'm saying, yeah, you, um, I've I've dealt with this in in doing some of my own stories, where it's like, as the person putting it together, sometimes you tend to overthink what the audience is going to be able to sort of understand. And and what's interesting about this story is that you know you have all this nice chronology and you've laid it out very nicely, but every time you would start a new scene. You know, then Debbie becomes a teacher and then, you know, years pass and I'm like, now we're on to the thing that's going to be the thing. You know, it's going to be the th- the point of the story. And then there'd be another scene, you know, it's like, no, wait, this is the thing. So sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I hope this is not too heavy for you guys. I wanted to make sure we got through all this stuff. It's a lot to take in. I feel like, you know, you have everything you need here, but you just have a lot of extra. Okay. And it's it's better to have too much than to have too little. Yes, absolutely. Always. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But we definitely need to go back and get a second yeah. interview to dig into yeah. more of how she took care of her mom. Yeah. But again, you don't it, when you get that, don't be it's it's, a, it's tricky when you do an interview because you feel like you need to put everything in. 
And that's, I think, part of what's going on here is she told you this whole story in great detail. And then you're like, oh, I owe it to her to tell the whole story. But you are the storyteller and you have to make the choice. And if the choice is the story is about running, then you make everything be about running. If the choice is the story is about caring for her mother selflessly, then that's what it's about. And so everything else has to take second place to that. Yeah, I think the angle here meant that I found interesting was, um, you know, she she found this thing to heal, you know, and the running is her thing. And and you need if if you're if you're needing to heal, you've got to find a thing. Right, which is and which is a her, different story yeah. than the story you're telling. I know, I know. What I was yeah, what I was attempting to do is show the 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 kind of grittiness of what she felt while this was going on. Cause I feel like others are going through or will go through that to then compensate to say, or not compensate to then say, how do you heal something that feels so broken? And here's how she did it. She kind of stumbled into it. Okay. So you're saying the story is, uh, you have to find your thing to help you heal. Jessica's saying the story is, Debbie took care of her mom. I think that's an amazing so which is story. It? I think it's an I think Both? that's an amazing story too. Well, it's it depends on what you're trying to do with your with your podcast overall, like which story you choose. But if you choose to tell it the way you did, the running just feels like extra. It just feels like it, it feels gr- it's like a really nice thing to know that she was able to take care of herself. We hope that she does well in her life. And the fact that she's able to take care of herself in this way is a good thing. I don't think you should cut it. That's not what I'm saying at all. And the fact, especially that she went and run a 5K without any training, like I don't know how soon after her mother died, is crazy and awesome. I ran my first 5K after doing a fair amount of training and I threw up all over the place. <laughs> so like I actually want to know more about that. Yeah. So that's a that's a great little story. Go ahead. Well, just you know, coming back to the the what the 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 theme and you know the title of the podcast is "Ordinary Heroes." The the running thing that's it's about um, you know therapy and, and taking care of yourself. Uh, there, there's not much hero, heroic about it except that you know you take stamina to run a to marathon. Um, whereas you know you talk in the introduction, one of the you know I'm looking at my notes and it was like the people who make the choice to rise above and things like that. Um, that's really, you know, when she really displayed that, I think to what all, all three of us are, are finding is in this decision to kind of force herself on her mom and say, no, I'm not going to, and, you know, and one of the other key lines in her tape is when she says, I'm not going to have any regrets. Um, which is, you know, it's just interesting too, cause it's a bit selfish. It's not about whether she's going to help her mom, but you know, whether she's going to be, feel bad about it later, which might be an interesting thing to explore too. But, but, uh, but the hero, that that's where the heroine, heroism, uh, seems to lie to me in this in this attempt to um to help that's a good point and we've got plenty of tape of her talking about that uh so i can see that angle that is pretty well i mean it's it's totally up to you how you want to deal with this and i do see that you want to be helpful to your listeners and say like look you can there's a tool that you can use which in her case was running like that's a good thing to talk about but i think you can still say she's a hero because she did this but then it you know it hurt and so she needed to help herself. And so here's the thing that she did. And that can be a thing that's helpful for you. But like, look, be inspired by her example of being selfless, you know, and taking care of herself in the sense that she was also making sure that she wouldn't feel, you know, horrible about how she didn't, you know, spend this time with her mother. Um, she was forcing herself on her mother and made sure that her mother felt taken care of. There's an interesting moment where her mother's like, you know, refuses care, refuses care, refuses care. And then she's like, I'm going to die if somebody doesn't take care of me. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes, it's right. Which is a wild right. little th- moment and it's, there. it's almost too late then. It's almost too late then, you know? That's yeah. what's crazy. And, you know, I think it's it's a really, like, in my it's totally my personal point of view, but I feel like these discussions about, like, when is it time to die? When is it time to let somebody, you know, to let yourself die and, like, not take on more treatment and all those kinds of things, that's a really important and really brave conversation, which she may or may not have had directly with her mother, but she hints at it, you know? So those things are all really important. You know, I think you have to make a choice with this particular episode. It may not be the case with other episodes. Whether you want to be more like self-helpy and say, listen, listeners, you can take care of yourself by, you know, you can make yourself feel better and heal using running. Or if you want to say, look at the example of this person who's totally ordinary and yet she made all of these really 
um, heroic choices. And she lived apart from her husband for however long it was. And she, you know, worked a job and t- took care of her mother and took care of her daughter and all this stuff all at the same time. It's ordinary and yet it deserves praise. You know, it deserves notice. Um, quick question. How closely do I need to, to tell you uh, what you should learn from this? Um, should there be an explicit part in the episode where he goes, and the lesson from all of this is, or the takeaway is... Well, how much, how much do you like hearing that from people? Directly? <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Nah. Now, when Radiolab will take it and they'll reflect on it in more of a subtle way, where after they finish the chronology, they'll go back and uh, elaborate and discuss and wow about it. Um, those parts work for me. Is that what we should be imitating? My and this is this is totally an aesthetic choice. I mean, if you're reading out on the wire, you know that like Glenn Washington is completely against reflection, basically in any form. He doesn't want the characters to reflect either. Um, but uh, I'm more of the Ira Glass school, where basically what I would what I want is to get the characters to reflect on their own experience. I want to see their change through their own eyes. Man, we bumbled no, but you didn't. Really you didn't. So She's bad. there. She's talking about it. Listen again to the tape. It's there. But I, th- I think I'm, it's way too harsh of an edit on her. Yeah. We, we have some, there's a lot of rich content we cut too. I, I feel like we cut the wrong stuff. Now listen to Jessica. Oh, I'm sure. It's the first time we did <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no that's possible. That always happens. But you still have the tape and you can still like go back and look at it again. But yeah. basically, I oh, think yeah. that she is mm-hmm. reflecting on what's important about it. She is. And you may need to sort of like... You may need to signpost that a little bit and say, like, look, is, see, and, you know, when I heard that, I thought this or something like that. Or, you know, y- like, I can hear, Dan, your impulse is just to try to you, you have a sense of like what the story is about and you want to tell us that thing. Um, but I think like Ben was saying, the important part of your role in terms of her story is to move the action ahead because there's a lot of, you know, like the stuff we're talking about that feels long. You can just summarize right. that stuff, Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, this is great. Um, and then and then let her have the starring role and let her say the great lines. Even if they're quiet and they're done in a way that's like subtle, she should be the one gets gets that good tape. I also think the the smaller the story is, generally, the less we need a host to reflect back. Like in a Radiolab story, they're talking about these big concepts, often science, stuff that you really need explained. And so it sort of makes more sense that they would also be the ones to sort of reflect back on like, what does this all mean? The This American Life model is to try to get get the tape of the reflection from the, the actual, the person who went through the story. Um, and sometimes you have to figure out ways to highlight that. Like one of the ways you can do that with sound is to have music playing and then the music stops at a moment that's really important and you want to like put it, put a light on it, you know? Um, and then the music picks up again after that at some point. Um, and then uh, there are moments, there's there's a role too for the, the reporter or the narrator to reflect, but usually it's not, you, you don't want to like step on their tape. You don't want to have, you don't want to be saying the things she's saying in a different, in different words. You might say what it meant to you or a thing that you, a connection that you're making to something else, like some other, you know, person you've talked to or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the, the more you can allow that her own emotion to be the thing that we hear, that is the reflection in a way. The fact that she's like right. getting choked up over something, that's it. You know, she's feeling it. Towards the very end of the episode, uh, we used one of Scott's observations. I think he says something at the very end, like she's learning and mm-hmm. growing. One of the things we're learning from all of the, the interviews um, is that the complexity of the story is that a lot of these stories aren't over. Now, if if, if we tell this story, uh, as you suggested, which is really an awesome take on it, that is over. Mm-hmm. That was a period in time. But a lot of, you know, we interviewed someone who was at 570 pounds and has lost 200 pounds. And, and that like, there's a constant struggle. Um, yeah, Jessica, you even said in, I think it was episode seven, there are no happy endings in real life stories. Yeah. Um, and that's something one that we're struggling with with telling these stories and two that we also want to put into like our episode zero um there are at least happy continuities you know <laughs> and like the the your story about the person who's lost all this weight yes it's an ongoing struggle and that is the reflection it's an ongoing struggle like that is the you know what you've got to take away from it but um at the same time that person has has achieved something really great 
through, you know, a series of actions. And that's clearly what you want to be highlighting. Um, And you want to tell the story, you know, think about the narrative arc as you tell the story. So you want to talk about like the crisis moment when the person realized that, I don't know if it's a man or woman, but like um, this, that they needed to take action, right? And then they take an action and then there's setbacks and then there are other actions and setbacks. And you get to a, a final point where there's like, oh, I've turned a corner here. You know, it's going to be a struggle. I see it's going to be a struggle, but I'm committed to the struggle. I understand the struggle. That's that is the climax of the story. Yeah, commitment. Yep, that's right. Commitment was that single word that we we isolated as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you still, even though you don't have an end in the sense that this person could gain weight again or could lose more weight or whatever, that the story is the story of coming to an understanding of what is required. That's the story, and there is an end to that story. I like the idea of small stories, Ben or whoever suggested that. That really makes this um, seem less stressful <laughs> and telling someone's, you know, you feel this commitment to someone who's got such a rich story that they own. It's their life. You're trying to tell it in a way that someone else can connect with and get some value out of. I think the idea of a small story is really, in my mind, my gears are moving to say it really takes some of the pressure off because now we can, it doesn't need to be so magnificent. It just needs to be simple and purposeful. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And I think that you actually offer more to your listeners that way, because if you want to tell stories that are useful to them, if they feel too magnificent, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to aspire to that. They're going to be like, that's great, but I can't do that. That's not me. Yeah, and if you want to make it accessible, that's you the have whole, to. That's why yeah, we that's, did. That's the whole purpose. Of this. <laughs> that's why we did it in the first place. Because <laughs> we would tell, exactly. we, we interviewed over a thousand people and and wrote a book about it, and and they were like, you know, Hall of Fame football players born with one leg, and it, I cut the the analogy. The takeaway was, hey, if that guy can do it with one leg, you can do it with two legs that's or what something. We're going for at least. And then people said, well, I have two legs, and that doesn't connect. You know, I it was still too magnificent. So we said, okay, let's just tell ordinary stories. But it seems like we've attempted to tell them too heroically. <laughs> yeah, right. you want to you want to yeah. admire her, but you want to say like, look, like the if we're going back to the story at hand here, you say like she, you know, really made a sacrifice, but it's a, it's a doable sacrifice. She could do it after work. You know, like she had every day she had to commit to doing this. But now that she did, I think the focus needs to be on she's glad she's boy. Is she glad she did this. You know, boy, is she glad she took this time. It made all the difference. And um, and it is a doable thing. Like I can imagine doing that for my mother. You know, um, I don't know that I that that's like how my life will play out. But that's I can imagine that. And um and I think that is if you want to inspire people to action and to taking these small actions, then you need to make these stories feel like these are real people and they are making choices that you are faced with and you can make the same choices. Now, do I say that? I love how you just said that. Do I say that or, or no? Is that intellectually like talking down to people? I think you can say that every once in a while in the right context. I don't think you want to say that every single episode because people, again, you want to keep it really short. It could be like something along those lines could be in like your iTunes show description so that people know that that's the kind of show it is, you know? Um, so then how does this show end? How does this particular, you know, I love this new angle. How does that end? How does this story end? Yeah, this new this new story angle that... I think that, that uh, the story you- ends with the mother dies and she's just damn glad that she did what she did. You know, that she did the best she could and she has a few regrets still and she realizes that she, you know, that she has to live with that. But she mostly doesn't have regrets, you know, because she did the right thing. And then I think you can have the denouement of her jumping out, you know, up and immediately going running. And like, that's how she's taking care of the the leftover feelings that she has is kind of, you know, mm, taking care of there herself. You there you go. Right. Leftover. Yeah, that's but right. it's that's denouement. Right. It's like, that's not the focus of the story. It's like, like a minute at the end, you say like, this is what she's doing now. And she takes care of herself, you know, the same way she took care of her mother. Yeah. And you could, ah, you could use that tape of uh, her husband that you have at the end. Uh, yes. which I don't remember. I'd have to listen to it again. I remember how, but it, you know, it is, he's basically reading from her journal, right? Where she's, ref, she is actually reflecting on how she feels and how she still has regrets. And, and that's sort of like a good summary of how she's feeling at that point. That but said, but the, then he says, then she's getting better, right? Then he says something, the husband says something like that. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, he says something like uh, she posted in her running journal every day. It, I still feel the pain, but I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm getting better. Right. Right. Yeah. And no, that's, uh, that's a good piece right there. Um, although I would say, I mean, I think we're going to be reworking this everywhere. Right now, you have the uh, the show ends very abruptly with that quote. It's a well, very there's no, cold. There's no outro. They're going to do an outro. Okay, you know that. Okay. They'll do an outro. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, you, so you have that. That's the transition to the very end. Um, and then you have maybe her saying a couple lines about running and that's your end. You know, you get a great quote about how she feels when she's running or something like that. Yeah. I mean, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And that's the running section. So in your opinion, so then so then you've got, you know, the, the, the show is over. You've got the outro. In the outro, do we then explicitly say, you know, hey, life's full of hard choices. Uh, you got to decide what's important. Do you want to live with regrets? No regrets. Even when you do, you're still going to have to struggle with things. Um, it, you're, you're saying that's down to your that show's a- personality. I think you have to make a decision about like how much do you want to talk specifically and directly to your listeners about what to do next. Like we do, we do that basically in our show. We don't say like it's all about this, but like there's a challenge which it says this is the most important part of this show. You know, when we have a challenge, we're like, here's the most important part of the show. You know, uh, you do go do this most important part because that's the takeaway. And so you could do the same thing. You could use the model we have where you have a challenge to listeners. It's like your challenge this week is to, you know, do one action that's like, you know, totally in line with how you want to remember, you know, somebody in your family. You know, and if you did that, then it's like you don't have to sit around beating people over the head with the idea that like, you know, live no regrets, blah, blah, blah. But it's like this is what's important. So go do it. What do you think is a, a good length for this, Jessica? Like tw- uh, 20 minutes seems under too long. 10 minutes under 10. Yeah, I would say under 10 minutes. Like you I mean, it might be longer. There might be good tape and you can, you know, do the various things with it. But just to tell the core story, you know, and like a little bit of um, setup. So like ha- why this was why she was aware, like what you want to do with the, the 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 setup and all of the previous cancer and everything is you want to set up the urgency of when she gets cancer again. Right. That's all you need to do with it. That's the role of all that other stuff is like, look, she already went through this and she already was like refusing help. And so this time Debbie knew she had to do the real thing. Right. And so she jumps. And so like that's a short like a couple of minutes at the most. Then you tell the story and then you have Mm. running at the end. Done. Out. And is that is is the is that my job as a narrator in a less pompous way to 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 kind of carry that you know conversationally carry that story along? Yeah. Well, because you need to tell like you need to allow, you know, you'll have little bits of her tape saying st- various stuff about various points in her life, but you're going to have to tell us all the stuff that strings it together because you're compressing a ton, right? And you, it doesn't, you know, all the stuff about like the details of, um, uh, you know, uh, when exactly this happened and all those other things, not that important, but like, you know, she had, again, I don't know if fibromyalgia is important because it's a risk factor or what, but like her mother had been ill her whole life. So she was aware of this, but then, you know, cancer in college and, but she didn't even know until afterwards. And so she was like, when it happened again, she was on. Got it. Okay. And then, so the majority of this is around, the majority of this is, is, is around that whole, that year of her going back and forth and back. And even that last week of, of, you know, should she stay? Should she not stay? The last conversation she had. Yeah. I think, you know, try to avoid too much repetition around it and just get into like the the choices, the big choices she had to make. And remember the the basic, even if you aren't going to actually interview her again, because you, you don't have to. But like if you don't think about the um, what was it like before and what is it like after, you know, that kind of like defining those transitions in her life. How do you is it how do you um, how do you find the real story? Because it feels like what I came to the table with wasn't the real story. I thought it was the running when I learned that she had run 2,500 miles. I was like, oh, holy cow. And now when you're telling it, I'm going, wow, that's the real story. It feels like I'm re- going up a pyramid almost of like awesomeness. How is there is there something that you and your team do? Um, obviously, I listened to 90 plus minutes of tape and possibly got overwhelmed. I'm not sure. But is there a way that you put yourself in a situation to, to be able to tell the real story, find the real story and tell it? Yes, it's called an edit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you really okay. honestly, you just have to have somebody else around sometimes. Yeah. To, to say it. Right. And like when we did our edit with um, Robert and Jess, uh, the first cut of episode eight was um, with edit episode. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It was the Dark Forest episode. It was like. 35 minutes and it ended up 25 minutes. I mean, we cut a lot out and and I thought I was telling the story totally clearly, but then I really wasn't, you know, and they were the ones who were like, how do we get to the solutions? Like everybody wants to know solutions. That's the story of the dark forest is how the f- you get out. Got it. So yeah, you need perspective. Yeah. yeah. That's what we've been running into. We've sent it to 
two or three different people yeah. who've listened to it, and they've given us general feedback, but nothing like this. Well, and we know it's not where we want it to be. <laughs> That's why we haven't released it. The big thing is we're telling the wrong story. That's the big red light. Well, you're telling a story, and there's another story that could be told. You know, and you're, it's your decision to decide which one, but you can't tell both. That's the question. You guys have any more questions or things that came up that you want to mention before we stop? Two things. One, was was Dan's narration too cheesy? Was it too yeah, over the we, top? Yeah, don't rub it in. It is. We know it is. Okay, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> T- to, me, to me, it sounds like very FM radio. Like, I guess that's the only way that I know how to put it. Um, it's... Uh, it's it's a tough thing to get, you know, like I've been working on this all for the whole season, like getting a more natural presentation and all that kind of stuff. And one of my um, secrets to writing my narration is that um, a lot of times I will when when Ben and I have a focus session and we go back and forth about what the story is, we record that. And, and if I say something the right way, I will transcribe that into my narration. So it's like it is how I talk. You know, I'm writing how I actually talk. And Dan, you don't talk like you're narrating. I can tell from our conversation. I know. <laughs> yeah, presentation-wise, I think just, you know, learn to chill out a little bit on it. You know, just like try, you know, have um, Matthew sitting across from you and look at him and talk to him like you're talking to him. Yeah, that's you know? right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. These are all good. Yeah. And it's experience, too. It's doing it enough times. Totally. So. It totally is. And, it'll, you know, it will get better. It's not bad. I mean, it's, it's like it's a little bit too forceful. But yeah, that's right. You know, I had people, some people who listened to it said, look, dude, I was an emotional wreck. Like you had me kind of like what you were saying. I went from like, (gasps) I kept gasping, waiting. And and then, uh, you know, it was like the music was there and everything. And I was after 20 minutes, I was completely exhausted. And I kind of got something, but I'm not sure what it was. So right. Because there's not there wasn't like each scene had an equal focus. And you need to like, you know, be more careful about where you place your emphasis. Um. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. And thanks, Matthew, for um, subjecting yourself to a brutal edit. <laughs> I hope uh, I hope you're able to walk away with it, walk away from this with um, action and not um, not being sad because it's very good stuff and you're totally going in the right direction. So keep going. Thank you. Yeah. Thank thank, you. And, th- and just thank you for sort of allowing us to do this. It's I think it's pretty brave. To... Yeah, it was really brave, really brave. Yeah. Thank Heroic, you. Even. Yeah. We're, we're giving you fist pumps over here from across the pond. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's really, there's really solid stuff in there. Thank you you so much. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for episode eight and a half. Join the Out in the Wire working group and get involved. To get an invite to the group, just head over to the show page at jessicaable.com slash podcast and sign up for the newsletter. At the show page, you can get show notes for all our episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and find links to our social media accounts. If you'd like to support the show and say thank you, we've put together a package of all our bonus content, including Matt's music, and interviews with Stephanie Fu, Rob Rosenthal, Kazakibuishi, and Larsa McFarker, and more. That's $10 or more. It's up to you. It's a great way to help us out and spend some more time with our amazing guests. You can find me on Twitter at JCCAble. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch, and Matt is at M. Madden Comics. And since this was our last workshop episode in this season, this is the last time you're going to hear from Matt. So, Matt, what do you got to say? Uh, you can uh, go on to my uh, SoundCloud channel and listen to more of my music, some stuff from the podcast and, uh, and other newer stuff. So it's just, uh, we'll put a link on the website, I guess. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. And we'll see you in a week with our very last episode of Season 1, Episode 9, Work It. See you then. Bye. Bye, everyone.